Welcome to Fireside with Boxcake, podcast for professional public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of Boxgate.com, which is an online community and service for speakers and event professionals. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker, or just want to improve your on-stage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. I am delighted today to be joined by Kwame Yawning, who's joining us on the Fireside Fox Game podcast. Kwame, delighted to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. I'd like to start with a couple of personal questions about your journey to becoming a public speaker. Let's start with the good and then we move on to the bad. Why don't you walk us through uh, a time or perhaps the best time when you stood up on a stage and gave a talk. It really connected with the audience and you felt the energy. And it just worked. Everything clicked. Yeah. So I guess as a bit of background, I'm from the United States and uh, I'm, I'm of an age now where uh, I can kind of look back and, and see, you know, sort of all the different things that, that came together to get me to, to where I am today. Okay. And I started out early as a, a teenager, really, in hip hop and spent a lot of time just on stages. So because of that, I, I think you know, performing and, and, uh, and traveling and, and preparing to be on stage when it came time for me to begin speaking about, you know, my work and design and all the stuff that, uh, I was interested in talking about, it sort of comes sort of, I guess, a bit easier now. I, I don't get as nervous, uh, as, as I might have, if I hadn't spent all that time, uh, jumping around, you know, trying to get crowds excited and performing. So I think, and when you do that enough, you, you, you kind of are able to determine when you're sort of like really in the groove and, and you're, and you're, you're vibing with the audience versus when you're just sort of going through the motions. So I think probably one of the best times I've had where I've, I've really enjoyed myself the most and had a, a, a real good back and forth was at a meetup for Glug. Glug is a an organization that puts on different like speaking events for okay. uh, for the creative industry for designers. And I talked about this idea of Dollar X, and it was the first time I'd, I'd actually publicly talked about it. And it was a really receptive audience. Uh, we had a lot of fun, and uh, you know the the it was beer. So everybody was kind of loose. Okay. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I, it was just, it was very enjoyable. And, and there was like a give and take. There was an energy that I was giving and I was getting back a, a lot of energy. Yeah. And I, do you think that's something that um, does require practice? Like you, you spent all that time when you were younger on stage and it feels like you kind of learned to read the audience through that process. Yeah. You definitely, you know, for, for me, whenever I do it, I don't really talk to everybody. I, I pick a couple people in the, in the audience. Um, usually like on the left side, on the right side and in the middle. Okay. <laughs> You're speaking to them. 
And I, yeah. And that's, that, that's who I'm, that's who I'm there for. That's, that's what I'm going to talk to. And, and that's who I'm, I'm watching really closely to see, you know, how engaged they are, um, making direct eye contact with them and really kind of, you know, trying to make sure that I'm getting my, my point across and that they're being engaged and, and, and entertained. Yeah. That's, that's what's important for me. Typically, like my, if I'm going to present from a deck or from slides, there's usually not a lot of words up on the slide. So there's not a lot of reading to do. Um, it's much more about telling a story. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in the Solar X concept you mentioned. And I, I bet there's a story there. We'll come back to that one uh, in a little bit. Okay. So that's the time it worked. But uh, of course, the inverse is more interesting. I, I believe yeah. you learn more from your mistakes <laughs> than your yeah. successes. Uh, so tell us when you bob. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, you know, recent. I bombed recently last year. Really? I, okay. I bombed, wow. Yeah. So up until last week, I worked at McKinsey. Okay. And we had a like the London office was about I don't know a thousand, maybe two thousand people. All went to Malta for a an offsite, and uh, I was supposed to get up and talk about one of the uh one of the engagements that that had we had just completed and sort of walk the entire office through you know what we had done and why it was special and and why it was interesting and all that kind of stuff and i've been traveling around and been working on a bunch of other things that had nothing to do with this presentation and hadn't really spent any time on the presentation uh I just kind of cobbled it together from other assets and hadn't really pulled together a story or anything like that. Ah, yeah. and, and so it was very rusty, but that's not the worst part. The worst okay. part is that, the, is that the guy that went up before me absolutely smashed it. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. He just, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he okay. and had, you know, like a great presentation and had people laughing and, you know, and walked off the stage and everybody was clapping. And then the, one of the partners who was the MC, kind of, you this know. like one of your bosses, basically. Yeah, yeah. She she introduced okay, me. Yeah. She was like, "Oh, and here comes Kwame," because I have done a, a lot of presentations, and usually those presentations go really well. And she, you know, she said he's going to, you know, kind of keep it going, and he's going to do an amazing, you know, presentation about blah blah blah. And did you know at this point that it wasn't? Oh yeah, I, I yeah. knew I was close, yeah. man. I, I knew. It. <laughs> Walking into certain death, uh, but you got to do it, right? You got to do, do it. it. Yeah. So I, I got up there and just stumbled and fumbled and really just wasn't at my best. And, and it was hard because it was in front of all of the people that I work with on a day-to-day basis, you know, yeah. if it had just been a bunch of strangers, you know, I, I would just shake it off and be like, okay, that's just a bad, bad day. But it was, you know, this one, this one kind of stung like the, and it was really the first time that I'd bombed, you know, in a, in a very long time. So, so yeah, so that, that, that kind of sucked. Yeah, it's it's funny. People often say that giving a talk to people that you know, like your family, even or colleagues, is more difficult. It's kind of more scary than than strangers. Yeah, because they <laughs> they know you. They 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 can see through the bluff. I guess. Yeah, yeah. They they and and I think also their expectations are a bit higher. Okay. Yeah. Because you you can't really get by on a lot of the the vagary and sort of hand wavy types of stuff, like, because they know the details. Oh, they know the backstory. Yeah. They know the backstory. So you really have to come with substance. And, and I, I think that's, that's where I messed up is that I didn't tailor the presentation to the level of, uh, I guess, insight and sort of context and scrutiny that that audience would, 
bring to bear on what I was saying. I, yeah. I just stepped up assuming, Oh, I got this. I do, you know, I do this all the time. This is the 10th or 12th presentation I've, I've had to give in front of a couple, you know, hundred people. And, you know, this is easy. And, uh, and, and in doing that, I, I totally underestimated who I needed to be in that moment. And I think that I, I probably let myself down more than, than anything else. I think everybody else just sort of shook it off. It's like, ah, hey, whatever, you know? Yeah. But you weren't happy. Yeah. yeah. For, for me, it was, it was, uh, it was tough. Well, let's take it. Sorry. I mean, I like, this is like tearing at an open wound. Let's take <laughs> into this a little bit because this is, this is where, this, yeah. this is where the good stuff is. Right. So you didn't prep enough. Why were you too busy? How did, how did you end up in that situation? I was busy. Yeah. I was, I was traveling. Uh, I think I was distracted by other work that was going on. I wasn't emotionally really tied to the, to the content, you know, yeah. it, it, was, it was something that I, I, we'd been working on it for, I don't know, like, like by that time, almost two years and we're into the long, boring part of, you know, taking it from a kind of like a MVP into our like alpha and, and beta releases. And it was just a lot of like little niggly stuff. And I'm, I'm much more excited about kind of the, the upfront yeah. concept generation and development and, uh, you know, and kind of moving with the big idea and, and just getting it, getting it to market, which is like, I guess kind of like why I've, I've left McKinsey and I'm doing what I'm doing now because I get a, a broader opportunity to do that. But I, I, I think that be, because I wasn't as invested, I didn't put the time in to pulling together a presentation that I knew and that I could, you know, that I wouldn't have to turn around and, and read from. Cause there was just, the, the, you know, like I said earlier, typically the presentations I do don't have any words on them. They're very visual. There's usually maybe some video or animation and it's much more of a storytelling exercise. This was much more of a report on, you know, sort of details and facts and things like that. And I just wasn't as interested in it. And, and because of that, I didn't, do the work that I should have done to not embarrass myself. <laughs> but I mean, I think you're hitting on, on a kind of a home truth here, which is it's your job as a presenter to tell a story, which means taking something that is boring, reporting facts, figures, and, and, and creating, is it creating a narrative or is, is it, is it bringing out the narrative? For me, it's, it's about exposing truths yeah. because, because yeah. that, that's the thing that, that really connects, you know, a story with, with an audience is the fact that it, there's, there's just certain things that, ring true. And you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. I've, I've either noticed that in my life or I've seen this in, in other sort of situations and I can believe in that. And, and because I can believe in that, I can go with you to this next step in the story. And if you continue to uncover those truths and, and make them relatable to people, then it's a, you have, you have a, you know, a fun time because you're, yeah. you're, everybody is, is growing and developing and gaining more insight into, you know, how the world works and, and why it is the way it is. And, and, and I think that's, that's the fun bit. Okay. So, okay. So let's think about this a little bit. You had, um, you had admittedly, like they were crappy slides, right? They were your slides, but they were still pretty crap. But with the, with those same slides, if you had invested a, even in just a little bit of time looking for the insights and thinking about how to communicate the insights and the truth, would it, would it have gone much better with the same slides? Probably. Yeah. I think so. I, I think if I've been a bit more prepared and had, you know, my three key points for each slide that I needed to cover, regardless of how much text was on, on the slide, right. You know, like 
you don't need to read the slide to the audience. The, the audience can read the slide. Yeah. It's, it's really about what are the, the key takeaways that you need to, you know, expose and then that allow you to bridge to the next step in, in the conversation. And I think that's probably what I hadn't done a good job of, uh, is, is really spending time on understanding, you know, okay, this is the information that's being presented. This is why it's, it's relevant and meaningful to the overall understanding of what it is that I'm trying to explain, but also why you should care about it. And I, I didn't, I didn't do that. It was just me standing up there kind of just talking about facts, you know, just like a, a lit, like bullet points. And yeah, yeah. that's never, never fun and never good. It's never going to work. Okay. Kwame, I, you, you've, uh, <laughs> I was waiting for it and it, you said it, <laughs> the three key points. So the word on the street is that, um, this is like drilled into McKinsey people is every slide has to have three key points. Is that, is that really true? Is like, is there like a, a sort of a PowerPoint bootcamp that you guys have to do? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is. So, so there's, I mean, but it, it's very, uh, ingrained into the way that you learn to communicate at, at McKinsey. It's actually, there's a book by uh, a former, I don't know if she was a, a partner or, or, or what, but her name is Barbara Mento and it's called the Mento Pyramid Principle. Okay. And this pyramid principle is about top-down communication. So the reason that McKinsey folks communicate in the way that they communicate and you have either things are either three bullet points or seven bullet points. And the, the reason that, that that is the case is because oftentimes McKinsey consultants are dealing with top management, with C CXO, CEO, CFO, CTO, CIOs. And these people don't have a lot of time or patience for detail. Sure. So, so the way that you communicate with these folks is you pretty much summarize everything up into you know, the top three kind of key points. And then there's a sequence and a hierarchy that allow you then to kind of drill down into the more detailed aspects. And so when you present your information on a slide, it should be structured in a way that surfaces, you know, those top key messages that you're wanting to, to get across in such a way that, you know, you can either uh, make a decision or prioritize things or, you know, just sort of say, okay, I grok this and we can move on as opposed to having to dive into, you know, long explanations or more bottom up exposition around, you know, what a specific issue is or how to describe a situation. And a lot of times designers coming into or anybody coming into McKinsey outside who hasn't come in through a traditional consultant pathway. One of the first bits of feedback that you get is that your communication style is not top down. Like it's not structured. <laughs> Are you uh, relating a personal anecdote here? <laughs> I'm not a top-down communicator. I, I'm very much a uh, sort of like nonlinear, coming in from this from sideways type of communicator. I would much rather have some sort of analogy to basketball, or you know, like some metaphor, or or just you know, sort of like some some random tangent, you know, kind of help to facilitate how I get to get to my point versus, you know, a very structured and analytical and pragmatic way of, of communicating. That's just not how I communicate. You have to adapt. You had to change. Yeah. I, you know, to an extent, to an extent. So okay. the part of what I think helped me a lot at McKinsey was that 
I acknowledge the fact that I was different, that I wasn't a traditional consultant. I tried to understand the perspective and practice some empathy from that perspective of being a generalist consultant where, you know, you are oftentimes perceived as being the smartest person in the room. And and so you have to communicate in a way that delivers on that and doesn't really expose you to uh, ambiguity. You know, like the points that you make need to be pretty solid and, you know, fact-based and anchored in uh, a strong kind of analytical continuum in order for you to be taken seriously by the CEO or the board of directors of XY Corp, right? So I get that and I understand that. And what I did coming in was I played against it because I would often, t- I, I was the guy that was brought to the meetings to show that, you know, there's a new McKinsey and, and that McKinsey is, is evolving and changing. And we have these digital people and designers and scrum masters and agile coaches and advanced analytics people. And they're different than we are. So I, I use that as an opportunity to be different. You know, I could, I didn't have to have the three bullet points on my slides. I didn't have to be top down. I could tell stories and, and have, have fun doing it. And, and so I, I enjoyed that. You could still do it if you had to. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing for me is uh, how useful is the McKinsey style for general conference? You know, you're giving a talk to a conference of uh, 300 designers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So is it useful or some parts of it useful? I think understanding, you know, the, the pyramid principle the pyramid method of top-down communication is useful to anybody because because you you always you know need to to improve and, and become a better communicator. So I, I I think it it can be useful. But oftentimes what happens is that you get into a situation where you can't communicate unless you have a, a pages behind you, you unless you have a deck. There's a, a video clip of me. <laughs> okay, go on, promote, promote, promote. No, no, no. There's a video clip of me presenting at a, a conference in Turkey. And, okay. the, and the projector like died or there was something wrong with my presentation or whatever. And so I'm, I'm up on stage with no slides. Oh, God. Because yeah, I don't have any slides, I don't, I'm, I'm struggling. Like, what, what am I, you know, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? What am I going to talk about? Uh, and I think that that was a seminal moment for me as, as well. Um, I didn't cause, because I, I, I don't, I don't feel that I bombed. I, I felt that I adapted. I thought it was kind of, kind of funny. Um, yeah. yeah, but, but it was, it was definitely sort of a moment where I was like, Oh wow, I've become so dependent on what's on the screen behind me that without it, I'm just like this like empty shirt up here, just like babbling and like telling jokes, right. About like random stuff. And <laughs> yeah. Whereas, you know, like if, if I was really intimate and had had a, a command of the subject that I was talking about, it would have been a little inconvenient and kind of, you know, kind of a bummer because I wouldn't have been able to show the videos or whatever. But, you know, it had been like I just could would continue talking and, and would have been able to, you know, continue to engage the audience. Yeah, that is a nightmare scenario for most people. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it kind of sucked. But, you know, it's, it's you, you, you adapt. You adapt and, and oftentimes the audience is rooting for you. Yeah. The audience, you know, they don't want to like watch somebody just like completely crumble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. still here. You're still standing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're still alive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly, I, I have seen it done well very infrequently. There's a guy called Greg Young who does this talk on disposable code. And you can find it on YouTube if you, if you Google it. But uh, he does like a... 30 minute talk without slides. 
That's incredible. I mean, he's obviously prepped it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's so powerful because there's no slides, uh, and I'm so jealous because <laughs> it just seems like such a mountain to climb to do a high quality talk without that visual aid. Yeah, I think we've in this modern age have kind of become a little too dependent on. It. I mean, so so my parents are ministers, so you know every every Sunday I'd have to go to church and listen to my my mom or my stepfather preach uh, from from the pulpit. And you know, there's no slides. There's no, <laughs> there's no presentation. Yeah, I mean that's powerful, right? And they would, you know, bring people to tears and and get them to like stand up and jump around and you know yeah. slam on tambourines and like sing songs and all this kind of stuff. So I think we, you know, as 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 people who spend a lot of time in front of people talking, I I think we we should not think of it as this huge achievement to be able to stand in front of people and communicate with them in a way that's, that's meaningful and, and, and moving. And, uh, with, with, you know, the doing it without slides is like some Herculean, you know, feat. I think it's, it's, it's just because we, it's probably easier for us as people standing in front of other people sort of naked and exposed to have that security blanket of pretty pictures or witty comments on the screen behind us, you know? Mm, yeah. That's kind of inspirational actually. Just, you know, <laughs> get over yourself and, and uh, it's not such a big deal. Uh, I won't be losing my slides anytime soon. <laughs> 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 uh, okay. I gotta, let's, let's move on to happier topics. Uh, that, was, that was really good. Thank, thank you for burying your soul and all your screw ups and all that sort of stuff. But that's how we are, right? So you, you mentioned a couple of things that I want to come back to, uh, and maybe these tie together. So, so you're kind of a designer by trade, right? Um, how did you end up going from uh, hip hop and performing on stage? Did you always know you were going to be a designer? Did, is it was it an accident? Uh, did it speak to you? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know if I believe in accidents because things have happened in such a weird way that it's kind of like we're just really uncanny uh, how I wound up at, at, at this place. But I was in music and entertainment and shifted to doing music videos from kind of being on stage to directing music videos and telling other rappers, you know, like, like what to do and, and how to perform and all that kind of stuff. And then got into television and, and movies and all that. And then it all kind of fell apart. And I found myself one summer in between working in, in cafes, riding a bicycle around New York City as a messenger and was delivering a package to a, a company and the, and the head of the company put out a newsletter. And so I was waiting for somebody to come in and sign for the package. I picked up the newsletter and just started you know, reading it. And the CEO of the company had you know, sort of a, a little column that he'd be put in the newsletter every month. And this one was about sort of his ability to be successful. And what he said was that my you know, the, the one thing that has allowed me to, to be successful is that I was an expert at one thing. And that really stuck with me in that moment. And so later that day, I, I went to Barnes and Noble bookstore mm. and was like, all right, so what am I going to be an expert in? Like, I need to figure that out. Like, I'm, you know, like what's, what's my expertise going to be? And, and at that time, there were like all these books about the internet and uh, HTML and C++ and all that kind of stuff. And I, so I, I, I looked at those and I picked those up and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Yeah. But then there was one book that was called Designing Business. And I read that through in one go, uh, just sat down and just spent like three or four hours until they kicked me out reading that book. Uh, and it was by a guy named Clement Muck. So, you know, months and months and months later, I learned HTML. I taught myself Photoshop. I, you know, had built a couple websites. 
And a friend of mine told me to go to a, a job interview. And I went to this job interview for a place called Studio Archetype. And they hired me. And the guy that the founder of Studio Archetype was Clement Monk. Wow. Okay. Wow. Full circle. Yeah, yeah, full circle. And that's where I was really exposed to design as a professional practice and uh, really got into it. And then Studio Archetype was acquired by Sapient. So that then sort of led to like more global exposure of different design problems and processes and methodologies. And then from Sapient, I went to Frog Design, which then exposed me to physical products and service design. And then, you know, so it, it just sort of this, this continuum of increasing, I guess, uh, sophistication around the design problems that, that we were solving that led me to this place where I went to McKinsey to really try to figure out how do, how do you marry business design and technology to create something special? Yeah. And that's, that's what I had been doing for the, for the past three years up until last week. And now I'm, I'm applying design to developing companies and, you know, and putting them out in the world. Which is awesome. And uh, I mean, it'd be, you know, companies don't go to McKinsey unless this is like a serious problem, you know? So it's, it's kind of, um, it's funny all from delivering stuff on a bicycle one day. It's kind of like Providence, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I said, I don't really, it's not really accidental in some ways. I, right. I, it, it feels like there's just too many, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get all weird, but, but <laughs> it felt like this is the path that I, I was supposed to take. Well, um, and I'm very, very happy. And the universe smiles, you got to smile back, right? There you go. So how is this connected to design uh, um, dollar X concept? You, you mentioned it earlier, which kind of intrigues me. Yeah. So dollar X is uh, I was working with a, a bank in South Africa and it was a bank that was undergoing a digital transformation and we were helping them to build out uh, like design ops. So their design team and identifying, you know, well, what's the difference between customer experience, user experience, UI and service design, and, you know, helping to define a, a taxonomy and role descriptions and, uh, you know, sort of tooling e ecosystems and as well as developing uh, the next iteration of their data, their sort of day-to-day -day banking app. So while we were in that process, one of the core client sponsors was like, all right, you guys are talking about this UX and this UI and the CX is like, what about dollar X? Like what, <laughs> what, about, what about, you know, sort of, you know, how does this all tie together? Yeah. What are the outcomes? <laughs> to make money. Yeah. And is there a specific design practice that you could tie to more commercial problems? And opportunities, and that really got me. It really got me thinking, because that's really the reason that I, I, I went to McKinsey in the first place was to understand how does design better integrate with business and technology to to create value, like like real value. And and so I developed that that idea of dollar X into a set of principles uh, essentially, and gave a, a couple talks about it. And it hasn't really taken off because I, I think it, it's it's easy to talk about, but it's it's hard to actually execute and most designers don't care. <laughs> Most of like a, a lot of designers would, would much rather say, you know, just, you know, sort of point me in the direction of the thing that you want built and, or designed and, uh, and I'll, I'll do that for you. Yeah. But developers are the same, right? This is the effect of what you're doing. This is how it fits into the bigger picture. This is yeah. why you're doing it. Yeah. But I, I, I think, you know, sort of like the, the really, the, the more advanced and, and sort of 
more holistic designers and, and technologists do though. They, they, they do care. Yes. Yeah. But those are the people that typically wind up becoming entrepreneurs and, and starting stuff. Anyway. Yeah. That's the problem. Uh, and, and you're going to find this with, with the startups that uh, you help incubate incubate is uh, all the good people are doing their own startups. It's, it's really <laughs> uh, well, let's finish up talking about dangerous, uh, which is such a cool name, by the way. So yeah. just this week you, you've taken a leap of faith. Yeah, I have, you know, it, it's been about, you know, a year and a half in the making. Myself and my partners, there's, there's three of us, uh, have been taking time either, you know, on the weekends or after work, uh, trying to figure out what is it that, that we really want to, that we care about and that we want to do. You know, we, each one of us comes from a, a, a different domain and a, a different specialty across design, technology, artificial intelligence, and, you know, value proposition development and product development. and this idea of creating a organization that, you know, sort of a, a vertically integrated venture capital firm where we come up with our ideas based on customer centric research. So looking at qualitative as well as, as quantitative research and going out and finding opportunity areas, sizing the market, understanding the, the value at stake within specific product categories, developing value propositions, building a, a, a fund, going out and, and taking sort of these value propositions to investors and saying, we want to develop these. Will you help us, you know, fund these? And then doing it, you know, and, and, and creating a model that's repeatable so that we, the next time that we do it, we'll, we'll be able to do it faster and with more precision. Yeah. So help me understand the model. Is it kind of like Y Combinator or is it, is it a different structure? Yeah, I guess it's like Y Combinator. But instead of going out and saying, you know, hey, entrepreneurs in the world come and, you know, present, you know, have it like a demo day or whatever. We go out and we do our own research and develop our own market intelligence. And we identify where we think the opportunity areas are going to be, uh, as well as work with our investors and our board. To because these are folks that are established in business, they understand and can see what uh, we're, we're focused on financial services initially. Mm. What the sort of incumbent financial services companies haven't been able to do, either because of regulatory barriers or just you know size and inertia, and identify areas that we can attack, and then we go after them. So each fund will have a portfolio. Of, let's say I don't know six different value propositions or product or service concepts. We spin those up and we kind of do uh, a guerrilla customer validation and uh, business case sort of interrogation. And the ones that survive that get a round of funding and then they go to market. And then based on continued uh, customer research and customer validation, and you know, uh, whether or not they're, they're, it appears that they have a, a, a viable revenue model, they will either be shut down and their funding will then be given to those uh, products or services that are doing well, that are performing well. And then we go to market. And once we go to market and we can show that there's potential traction in that market and a, a likelihood of the ability to scale is when we go and get proper, you know, like series A venture funding. Okay. Um, and that's when we exit our majority stake and uh, turn it over to the entrepreneurial team that's developed it to that point, as well as whoever the, the venture capital firm wants to, to develop it further and scale it in the market. It really is an incubator. You really actually incubate the companies. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. But, but we, we, we do it in a way where we're not working with 
strangers. I think it's, it's like over the years, all of us have uh, created relationships and, and found people who we know are really special. And yes, you know, they're all sort of working at different organizations or doing, doing things all, all over the world. But I, I think we're at a place now where you can pull together really diverse and powerful teams quickly and, and organize them around creating value through a specific uh, platform and, and, and take those things to market. And, you know, given the fact that we all have kind of short attention spans and we're we're, we're always like looking for that, that next thing, this model is, is really attractive to us because it means we get to work on something for, you know, for like 18 months, two years. And you get to participate in that, that early phase that you get to participate, but then, you know, somebody else can kind of come along and, and, and take it. Yeah, uh, operationalize, do all the boring stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the long boring. That's <laughs> just the long boring phase. Yeah. Uh, so, so it, it, yeah, it's complementary to our mindsets yeah. and, and the way we work. The, the, the other reason, that, you know, the reason we're called dangerous is, is because there's a certain amount of, I think, ineffectiveness and ineffectualness uh, that, that we're seeing currently right now with a lot of the products and services that are, that are out there for people. They're, they're not very humane. and they need to be disrupted. And that's kind of where we're coming from is it's, you know, we want to have, we want to be able to have as much impact on the status quo in a positive way as, as possible. Uh, because we, we, we don't really feel that, you know, things are as good as they, they could be. Absolutely. I really like it. I, um, years ago, I uh, worked on a team that was rebuilding a mobile banking app and we had a fantastic vision centered around user, user-centered design, all that sort of stuff. But the difference between the final product and the vision was kind of light years. <laughs> it was super frustrating and it's so necessary. It's a huge challenge, you said yourself, but wow, I, I can't wait to see the results. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is fantastic. Wow, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been super interesting and, and really, really cool. There's a couple of uh, cool books called out, so I'm going to check those out. We'll try and put them in the the show notes as well. Thank you. It has been fantastic. All right. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and wrap up another episode of Fireside with Foxy. You can find notes and links from this podcast at foxgate.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, one you can also learn. Visit foxgig.com slash newsletter to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to the podcast Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.